and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am Jayla Burton, Program Manager here at Breast Cancer Action, and I'll be your host. In mainstream U.S. culture, breasts are linked to femininity, sexuality, and attractiveness. As a result, breast cancer is a highly sexualized and gender disease. However, because sexuality exists on a spectrum and not all people fall into the typical gender binary, man or woman, we challenge the narrow definitions of femininity, womanhood, and sexuality imposed on people living with and at risk of this disease. We do this work by honoring the different ways in which people express their sexual and gender identities while challenging mainstream assumptions about gender and sexuality as it relates to breast cancer risk, diagnosis, and treatment in order to make room for people of all gender and genderqueer identities in the breast cancer movement. In our work for health justice, we strive to practice principled allyship by using our power and privilege we hold as an organization to build solidarity with communities who have historically been denied access to institutional power, information, and resources. We strive to extend beyond allyship to focus on strategic partnerships with groups harmed first and worse. A little bit of history of our roots within the LGBTQ rights movement. Back in the 1980s, our organization early members apprenticed themselves to ACT UP, a grassroots group working to end the AIDS pandemic. Like ACT UP activists, our members shared many of the group's tactics by turning their anger into action. The two groups learned from each other and both pushed for better treatments, true prevention, and in better investment in public health. Achieving health justice requires us to be free from oppression that prevents us from living healthy lives in healthy communities. Oppression works by isolating people, breaking them down into distinct groups, and positioning them against each other. Just as the need to create jobs is set in opposition to the need for environmental protection, trans issues are often set in opposition to more traditional gay or lesbian issues. Breast Cancer Action recognizes that a number of diverse communities, including gay and transgender folks, are disproportionately and uniquely impacted by many health harms, including breast cancer. Today, I'll be talking with Lori Merges, who has personally experienced navigating a breast cancer diagnosis as a lesbian woman, and Scout, the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. So I'll pass it over to you, Lori. Thanks, Jayla. It's really nice to be here and be able to share the story with you. And honestly, I think it's so needed for this community because, as you said, we've very often been represented fully in diagnosis, but not always represented fully in the kind of treatment that we need. So it's, it's good to have this. I appreciate it. I was diagnosed in right at the end of 2015, um, right after Christmas, actually. So wasn't very much fun. Um, Santa brought me breast cancer. So I was diagnosed with stage three invasive lobular carcinoma. And had, I had extensive lymph node involvement as well. So I spent all of 2016 and part of 2017 in treatment for breast cancer. 
I had 16 rounds of chemotherapy. I had a bilateral mastectomy. I had 33 rounds of radiation. I had expanders placed to start the process of reconstruction. I had expanders removed because they landed me in the hospital three times with an infection. I lived flat for quite some time. And then I decided in 2018 that I wanted to reconstruct for numerous reasons, which I'll get to shortly. And upon reconstruction, they found another rogue lymph node in there that was positive. So I ended up having 66 more rounds of radiation. Um, It had not spread anywhere. It was in the same area of the original tumor. So since 2018, I've been cancer-free, but it has definitely been a journey to be sure. And the one thing that, you know, we've, we've been talking about the LGBT community in cancer treatment and and if we're treated any differently or if we feel like we're getting what we need from the system, I can say honestly that uh, my experience has been that I did get what I needed from the system and and I was treated and respected fully just like any other uh, patient, which has been a very wonderful experience for me. I uh, am a resident of Cleveland and I'm fortunate enough to have the Cleveland Clinic right in my backyard and that is where I was treated. And the Cleveland Clinic, they're very committed to diversity, and they have an entire program dedicated to best serve LGBTQ patients, which I greatly appreciate. From the start, I was always able to bring in my partner. The last thing I needed was more struggles, so I didn't even hesitate when I came in for my initial consultation how everything was going to go. I had my partner with me and made it clear right from the start that this is my support person, this is my partner, and she is to be included in all decisions, always. And that was never an issue or an obstacle at the Cleveland Clinic. From the start, she was always treated very fairly. She was allowed to be with me for everything. She was my number one contact person for surgeries. She was allowed to stay in my room with me when I had surgery. So my experience as a uh, lesbian cancer patient at the Cleveland Clinic has been fantastic. Now, I'm from a part of Ohio originally that is not nearly as accepting and open. And I often think of what would have happened had I been diagnosed with cancer there versus up in Cleveland. And I can tell you that I know for certain that my experience would have been completely different, my partner being included and being allowed to be an active part of that. So that's kind of my backstory. I'm clear now and hopefully will remain that way for quite some time. Yeah, Lori, it makes me relieved to hear that your experience has been not as trying as, you know, a lot of, you know, other folks that we see that are in rural communities. So that is great to hear. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast, being willing to share your story. And and now I want to introduce Scout as the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. Um, I would love if you could just tell us about what has brought you to this work and also give some background to your organization and, and what you all are doing in order to achieve health justice in the cancer space for LGBT communities. Thanks, Jayla. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and, and certainly happy that you're kind of looking at this different angle on an issue that some people think they know well, right? We, we focus on a few different areas related to cancer for LGBTQ plus folks. We do a lot to educate our own communities about how we have cancer disparities and how, you know, the, the need, obviously, to get screenings, but also how to get resources if you do get a cancer diagnosis. 
And then we do a lot of advocacy to make sure that mainstream cancer organizations include materials, programs, and resources for us, which is really, honestly, we're at the very beginning of that. And then we do a lot of trainings of providers. I mean, I think we're at a time when we realize many providers want trainings. They're not usually easily available. So uh, there's certainly a lot more of that work going on. We, we realized there was um, a survey not too long ago that showed that actually 80% of oncologists did not feel that they knew enough to treat trans people with cancer. And 60% did not feel they knew enough to treat LGBT folks. So, you know, there's su such a big demand for this training and yet it's still not something routine in schools. So um, a lot of what we do is try and educate all parts of the cancer world about how there's some differences in experiences. And, and I love Lori's story, especially during Pride Month, because it's also important at, the, at this time of kind of our celebration and joy that we celebrate some of the really positive experiences. That's great. And I'm happy about that. But I also know that like Cleveland Clinic is the only place, the only cancer center we know in the country that has an LGBT office. So we realize they're doing a much better job than some places are. We understand that lots of cancer centers don't even have like trans in their non-discrimination statements. So it can get very different. You know, your mileage may really vary. Exactly. And that's, as I mentioned, you know, I, I grew up in the Western part of Ohio and it's much more conservative over there. And I absolutely agree with what you said that, you know, while this is a celebration of a, of a, a win, if you will, because it's wonderful that the Cleveland Clinic is so open and so accepting. And I felt, you know, very well taken care of. There are some areas that they need to help with and we'll, we'll discuss this too, but overall it was great. But I, like I said, I definitely agree scout that in different parts, even of the state, and I'm certain the country as well, that I would not have had the same experience that I had at the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. So I would love if we could go into what are some of those gaps within the healthcare system that some people around the world may be, be dealing with, like in terms of discrimination within um, the healthcare system, the lack of support systems and, and having their families or loved ones, chosen families integrated into their care. Um, so could either of you speak to that in terms of what that may look like, um, what might not be wins for, for other people? Well, I think um, we have done a pretty big survivor survey. So if I can give you a little bit of a preview of the, some of the findings that are actually going to be released on June 30th, we are finding that a lot of people are able to get to quality care, are able to get to a good care experience, but, and there's a big but, many times they've had to travel and search harder in order to find it. So that could mean that like if your local hospital starts with saints in front of it, people don't go to the local hospital because they have concerns about how they're going to be welcomed or how their partner will be welcomed or whether, you know, all the people in their support team might be welcomed. In a similar way, you know, we do a lot to build comfort and safety in our lives if you're any kind of an underserved or just a population that experiences any kind of disparity, right? And for a lot of those populations, you're usually born into a family that's similar, right? If you're a racial ethnic minority, anything like that. And so your family often helps teach you how to be safe. But with LGBTQ folks, it doesn't work the same way. Our family is often actually part of what can sometimes 
leave us feeling less safe, but can't often teach us. Lori, you talked about how quickly you moved out of rural Ohio in order to get to, I presume, a safer city to live in, correct? Yes, yes. I grew up in a very, like I said, very rural area, uh, very close to the Indiana border, that part of Ohio. You know, and, and there are good people, of course, there as well. But the reality is that it was not a place that I felt like I could really truly be myself and, and feel safe being myself and live the kind of life that I wanted to as a lesbian woman. So yes, Cleveland is of, of the state of Ohio, the northeast corner of Ohio is definitely the most open and accepting area. There's some places in Columbus as well, but there's definitely a, a pocket up here that is much safer. And you're 100% right. That's why I came up here. And Lori, since I know a little bit about your story, can I also ask you, is this not also something that's relevant with your partner now as well? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So just to clarify, because it might get confusing, the partner that was with me through the uh, cancer treatment, she and I are no longer together. The cancer, that's another part of, of that, that we don't talk about enough is how it can impact relationships. When we got to the end of it, our relationship just couldn't handle anything else. We were just exhausted from this whole thing. So that relationship ended. And I have been in a relationship now for over two and a half years with someone who lives in South Carolina. And we are finally ready to make the jump. And, you know, she's coming here to Cleveland. I'm not going to South Carolina because I'm not going to go backwards. So, so in Scout, I shared this with Scout, you know, if, if there were any health issues with her, you know, we're, she's in her late forties, I'm in early fifties. And, you know, we're getting to that stage. I would much rather have her here in an area where if something were to happen to me again, or something were to happen to her, that we can be in a place where we're fully accepted and we're safe. So that's ex- exactly what Scout was, was uh, referencing. Yeah. And Jayla, as you're talking about, you know, all this intersects with privilege. And so, you know, many of us have the opportunity to move those safer spaces. Some of us don't. You know, some of us aren't old enough to separate from our families yet. Some of us do not have the money to move to safer spaces. Some of us don't have, you know, the private health insurance to choose which doctors we go to. So, um, you know, we see across the board, this really intersects with what level of privilege you have in the first place, how good your outcome can be. But I mean, you know, cast large, we understand that the queer communities have greater risk factors for cancer, which are honestly, just boil it all down, related to discrimination. One of our biggest ones is that we're more likely to smoke and use tobacco products at rates that are much higher than the general population. Right now, even like our youth, between one quarter to a third of our youth are being addicted to e-cigarettes, uh, usually by these fancy flavors that they put out. So, you know, we we're, there's a lot of things we do as youth to try and cope with the stress and discrimination of social exclusion. And unfortunately, those are rarely healthy behaviors. Some of those really intersect with cancer. Then you add on the fact that we have a pronounced history of challenges accessing care, sometimes because we're less financially stable, sometimes because we can't find a welcoming doctor, sometimes because we found a doctor who was not welcoming, and that memory stays large in our minds. But there's a lot of information about the level of implicit bias that still sits in the medical community against LGBTQ folks, and we feel it. You know, we're absolutely not immune to it. We feel it. And 
you know, I have to admit in my own story, I run the cancer network. And when my partner found something unusual on my back, I dawdled because I didn't want to go to a new provider. And even though I'm also in a welcoming city in a welcoming state with full non-discrimination protections, unlike many people in the country have, I didn't know how to find a provider that was welcoming. Despite the fact that I run the network, I know better. And yet it really took my partner dragging me in order to get me to, in that case, a dermatologist and it was cancer. So I'm glad I did it. But this whole aversion because of bad experiences or bad experiences we know that our friends have had, you know, as a trans person, I am surrounded by friends who've had horrible experiences in the doctor's offices. So you, you take the higher risk factors and then you take, you add on this delay or barriers accessing care. And then you also have information that we have less satisfaction with care and less optimism about life after care. And unfortunately, it just ends up being, you know, a series of dominoes that keep kind of hitting one another and creating a chain of events. So we're delighted every time there's someone who can get the kind of care that Lori got. That's what all of us should have access to. Although I think we still, we still have something to say that maybe there's, it's, it isn't completely perfect. <laughs> we'll still talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's definitely not perfect. And I will say, and I know this is, it goes a little bit beyond the scope of, of this particular um, subject matter, but, you know, as a, as a lesbian parent, you know, when I am looking for, you know, providers for my children, that's another whole thing I have to think about because I have to let make sure they understand this is a two mother household, not a mom and a dad. And, you know, I have to always make sure that that feels comfortable before I get my kids involved, you know, with any provider where I feel like there could be, you know, any level of, you know, misunderstanding or discrimination, you know, certainly I hope they don't have old school mentality about the LGBT community and children, you know, all that nonsense, but you know, you'd be surprised. There's still people out there that, that think that way. So that, you know, extends beyond just the cancer thing. But, you know, when you look further down, even as a parent, a gay parent, when you're dealing with the healthcare system can be a little dicey as well. It actually happened to the head of oncology here. And again, you know, very liberal state, very liberal, you know, Ivy League University and the head of oncology, who is a gay man, was given guff about trying to prove his relationship so he could prove he was one of the two fathers of his kids when he brought one of his kids in for treatment at his own institution. Incredible. Yeah, you know, you, you really are surprised by how much this persists, this dual standard. Exactly. Interesting. Um, so, Lori, I know you had alluded to, um, when sharing your story, some of the the challenges or some of the not so perfect things <laughs> um, that happen within you navigating your diagnosis. So I'd love if you could share some of those things that, you know, we could do and our healthcare systems could do better to best hold space for all of us as individuals within the care system. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess it really comes down to making sure that our, our providers understand that they're treating not just the body part, but the whole person, because we are, we, we are whole human beings and we have not just the part of our body that has cancer, but, you know, the rest of our body, our emotions are, you know, who we are as, as people. And, and part of that includes being sexual beings as well. And the one area that I will say that, that they really just didn't know what to do with, as wonderful as they were, and I don't think it's just them. I think it's just probably an issue all the way around. 
is as I was in active chemotherapy, you know, there were a couple days before all the horrible side effects would kick in when the steroids were still rolling and you felt pretty good. And I'm in a relationship with someone that I'm in love with and I want to be intimate with this person. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to be intimate with the person because the chemotherapy is so strong that I'm only allowed the first of all the 16 rounds of chemotherapy, the first four were so potent that I could only have four for my whole lifetime. So they were that toxic. So wondering, can we be intimate? And, you know, all the literature that we get or anything that we would ask would always, it always had stuff about, well, if you're going to be sexually active, use condoms. Well, that's great, except (laughs) what am I going to put the condom on? Okay, we're not really in that space. So, you know, that became a little bit like, are are we allowed to, you know, for lack of a better way, is body fluid exchanging allowed to happen? Or is that dangerous because they're of the level of toxicity that's in these, you know, this chemo medicine? So there was really no clear answer of what we were allowed to do. And, and I found that my oncologist, as wonderful as she was, I mean, got very red in the face. <laughs> it was a little bit uncomfortable, well, a lot uncomfortable with this particular question. But the more I started digging around, I found that nobody really seemed to have an answer about this because nobody really ever thought about it. But we think about it because I'm in a relationship just like, you know, my straight friend who has cancer is in a relationship, you know, with her husband. And, you know, there's an assumption that, yes, there, there's probably going to be some intimacy. So here's the guidelines for that. But we're going to want intimacy, too. And there are no guidelines for us. And we don't know what to do. And are we? I don't want to make my partner sick or expose her to this toxic chemical if it's going to harm her. You know, so we'd never really truly got answers. And we basically just were like, well, let's cross our fingers and hope you don't lose your hair. But we didn't know what else to do. So there was really no clear guidance around that particular part during chemotherapy. And I don't know that anything has changed in that area either. No, it hasn't. I mean, we know this is something we hear from a lot of survivors that they want tailored resources. They want tailored support groups. They want to go into a support group where they're seeing other LGBTQ folks like themselves. Yes. And they want information about, you know, how would this affect all aspects of my life, including intimacy? Right. And despite, it's one of the things we saw in the survey, lots of people said those things were important and almost no one said they had access to them. So that's real challenging. Hmm. I'm glad that you're touching on that, Lori and and Scout, because I know in the larger, I guess, breast cancer space, I've sat in on conferences where these, you know, care providers are just saying, you know, just chop off the breast. And then it's, and it's like, well, it is also a sexual organ that people do get pleasure from. And even so we, we talk about it in that sense, but I, I don't think it's talked about in terms of navigating a, an intimate and sexual relationship with a partner. Um, it's talked about at all. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I don't think that the, the needle has moved, unfortunately, um, on that. But thank you for sharing. <laughs> exactly. No, it, that's exactly right. And when you say just have the have the breast chopped off, I mean, it does feel like that sometimes. And, you know, what they also don't take into consideration, whether you're you're gay or you're not gay. I mean, you know, as, if you're losing, if you're a woman and you're losing your breast, for some of us, they are very sensitive, you know, and that's part of our sexuality as well. Not just for other people to look at, but, you know, for us to enjoy our, you know, sex, our sexual experience. And, it's just gone. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're also kind of navigating a whole new realm of, okay, this is different than I've ever done before. Now I've lost part of the sensual 
sexual part of my body. And now I have to figure out how to kind of wrap my head around the idea that that part is gone. You know, and the other thing is, and Scout, we talked a little bit about this earlier, and I think this is really important as well. You know, when you're a lesbian and you don't have a male partner, there's such a, like you said, there's such a focus on breasts and, you know, it's part of being a sexual part of a woman and, you know, you know, aesthetically. So there is this kind of automatic assumption that if you get a mastectomy, that you're going to automatically want reconstruction. That, you know, no one would want to be flat because, you know, part of being a woman is having breasts, you know, and for a lot of, even some, you know, the plastic surgeons, they just kind of assume that you want to go bigger. Here's your chance to get bigger. I'm like, no, no, I want to go smaller. I don't want to be bigger, you know, but I think there's just kind of like, well, you know, here's your chance to get new breasts and, you know, big breasts are kind of a thing and the and guys like that. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't, I'm not with a guy and I don't want big breasts. And so you have to kind of almost talk them out of what they think you're going to do. You know, like, no, I don't want that because there's an assumption that that's what all women are going to want. And I know as a lesbian, I a hundred percent did not want that. And can I say that gets more complicated in the trans world too, because mm -hmm. You know, you can get reconstruction paid for if it's heterosexual, cisnormative reconstruction. But if you're, you know, if you're a trans guy and, you know, like one of our board members is a trans guy who had breast cancer, then you can't get reconstruction the way he would have wanted it. That's not paid for. Oh, wow. It's unfortunately really, again, cis-heteronormative. And in, in the same way, one of the things I know, Lori, you and I had talked about in advance is... Um, they're not willing to put nipples on as part of reconstruction. Oftentimes that's not paid for in surgery. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Right. So um, again, when you're a trans guy and you might be going, you might've considered top surgery, right? And then a double mastectomy is in the mix. You find that there's kind of, there are two very different paths. More and more insurance companies are paying for top surgery, but a double mastectomy is not the same thing. And you can't get the two of them to meet at the exact time you need it to happen in your life because of insurance concerns. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's a travesty. That's just, it's inexcusable that, you know, if, if you pay for reconstruction for breast cancer for anybody that should be paid for, for everybody. And, you know, and that, to me, I, I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like breast cancer is breast cancer is breast cancer. And if someone wants to reconstruct and become larger, then great. If they don't want to reconstruct at all, then great. They want to be in the middle. That's great, but it shouldn't have anything to do with gender identity at all. I mean, this is what you want. This is that should be honored, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't make the rules. We got to get you to to where you do make the rules, Lori. That would make it easier <laughs> for all of us, right? Another thing I, you know, that this topic is is bringing to me is, as we're talking about mastectomy reconstruction, also within the the reconstruction, also a lot of people talk about breast implants and you know, one of the things that we've been really critical of over the last couple of years is kind of the harms that come with breast implants. And there are many accounts, and we've increasingly heard more about experience of cisgender women struggling with breast implant illness or um, breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Ooh, that's a mouthful, but post implants. And so for people who are trans or have um, gender queer identities and breast augmentation can play a major role in gender 
affirmation and even prevent anti-trans violence. You know, these risk factors still exist, but I, I feel like we don't hear about those stories as much. And, and I'm not sure if that has come up in the out survey or um, other experience. One of my um, dear friends, best friend, just had to go to California on an urgent basis because I'm not sure if you're familiar, but for a lot of trans women, particularly if they're trans women of color, if they're low SES, and so they're dealing with, you know, like several levels of stigmatized identities, which means you don't have as many life chances, which means you're not as likely to have the financial freedom, right, that that some other people are, are able to get, that actually it's not even an issue of breast implants because people are injecting veterinary free silicone in order to get the chests that they want in order to get the breasts that they want in that case. And so this woman, um, because this is free silicone now underneath your skin, and there is almost no research as far as what kind of impact this has. Like you say, you're getting new research around what implant risks there might be. What happens when the silicone doesn't even have a bag around it? And she had to go out to, um, well, she had to go to California and have urgent surgery to get all of this free silicone removed because it doesn't stay in one place throughout your life. I mean, you know, not even counting the fact that we have these issues where a lot of trans women don't understand that they need to be screened for breast cancer. You know, we've got breast cancer screening programs around the country named things like wise woman program. Well, that doesn't actually necessarily do a good job of outreaching to the trans guys who haven't had top surgery. Right. And, you know, we had an issue years ago where, um, one of the federally funded programs turned down a trans woman for screening. She actually went on the nightly news and said, this is ridiculous. And I really bow with respect to the people who have that much chutzpah and ability to kind of put themselves out there for what you know is going to be a lot of attacking, right? Um, but because of that, the federally funded breast and cervical cancer screening program is now very trans welcoming saying anybody can get any trans person. If you've got that body part, you can get screened at a reduced or free rate through those programs. So, you know, there's all these layers of, of the things that aren't necessarily going well. Sometimes we get a step forward in that area, but there's so much more to cover. You know, we get these re case reports of trans women getting kind of a very rapid onset earlier age breast cancer. Could that be related to some of the silicone augmentation that's happening? Um, we don't have enough research in this area yet to give you any answers. We have a lot of points of light, but nothing really yet makes a pattern. And so it's a lot of areas of concern. Absolutely. And, you know, there's other dangers with implants too. I mean, when you get diagnosed and you meet with everybody and you have all your, your, you make your plan of what you're going to do, you're so overwhelmed. There's so much information and there's, you know, all you're trying to do is not die. And one of the things that gets thrown at you way at the beginning, even though it's not for a long time, is, you know, reconstruction. And, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, sure, whatever, you know, because I, I just, I don't want to die. So let's just fix this part. I don't care about that. So when you get to that point, you know, there's kind of like this, there's kind of an assumption that you're going to want to reconstruct, first of all. And, you know, when they do the surgery, they just put the temporary, the expanders in there, right from the jump. So when you wake up from your mastectomy, they're already in there. And they fill them a little bit at a time to kind of stretch those muscles. And then the, the goal is to switch them out and put in permanent implants. And that's what, what I had done. Cause I like everyone else, I just thought, okay, that's fine. You know, I don't, I just, whatever. And that was a problem. My body rejected those things. And three times I ended up in the hospital admitted 
very sick. And remember, I'm still very immunocompromised from chemo. I'm getting ready to do radiation. My radiation had to get pushed back because of all these infections. So ultimately, I ended up having to have them removed because my body just rejected these expanders, didn't like them. You know, it just kept infecting, infecting, no matter what they did, we'd get it under control, then it would come back. It just could not shed this infection from these expanders. So when I, I did live flat for a couple of years and actually was going to just stay that way, which to the dismay of all of my team, they were like, really? Like they had never even considered the idea that I would go flat, which was interesting. But when I finally, and I ultimately did reconstruct because I, my clothes just didn't fit right. There was just the way that my skin, the radiated skin was hanging. It just, it looked even with, and the prosthetics were too heavy and they were hot and I don't like them. So ultimately I did, but I ended up using my own tissue for my own body. You know, I had plenty of fat in my thighs. So, <laughs> so we used fat for my thighs. So, but it's a very involved surgery, but I'm like, at least then my body's not going to reject it because it's my own tissue. But again, the assumption right from the start is you're going to want to reconstruct. And, the, and for most people, at least initially, it's you're going to reconstru- want to reconstruct and you're probably going to want implants. You know, and that's, that's something that, and also as a lesbian, had I been totally flat, had I, had my, had I being flat actually looked flat, <laughs> you know, like smooth or not, you know, extra skin from where the, you know, everything had been radiated, I might have kept them. I might have stayed flat, but it just didn't look right. So but the assumption is everybody's going to want to reconstruct. And I know as a lesbian, I was actually not so sad about not having to wear a bra and things like that. <laughs> but ultimately I did just because it, it didn't look right under my clothes. But yeah, there is a definite, a definite bias there for implants and, you know, regardless of the health issues associated with implants. So in a way, I'm glad that my body kicked them out before they got too far in there. But I know that that's definitely a concern going forward with a lot of people that I know. One thing too, that I think is different for a lesbian going through this process is that I have a lot of straight friends that have been through this. And one of the first things they always ask is, do you want to preserve your eggs in case you want to become pregnant later? Now I was in my forties when I was diagnosed, but I, I had young children, you know, and I wasn't going to have any more kids, but that was never even like, never even addressed with me. Like, do you want to preserve eggs? Do you want to, I mean, nothing about my reproductive health whatsoever. And I don't know if it's because I was a lesbian. I'm not sure. Lori, that is actually not uncommon. It's one of the things we also hear from people and we heard on the survey too, especially trans folks. It's never approached doesn't with trans folks. Sure. I don't know why there's such that sense, but people wish they had known more. People don't understand. They just don't understand. I think that's the biggest thing. They just don't understand. But I do, I remember thinking, huh. I never got asked that. And I I thought maybe it's because of my age. I was 45 when I was diagnosed. But again, I had my twins when I was 40. So it wasn't like I was super far out. And I was still menstruating and stuff. So I mean, but they never even bothered to ask me that. Like, do you, you know, and I'm like, maybe it's because I'm just older. But it was weird that that conversation never even entered the equation. You're not the only one. So I know, Scott, when you were talking about kind of the lack of research and data that exists when it comes around this free silicone, that also made me think about just the lack of data and research in general when it comes to like sexual and genderqueer folks, especially in the cancer space. So can you speak to why there is a lack of of data and research? I believe there's only about like 1.8% of NIH funding for gen- sexual and gender minority research mm-hmm. when it comes to cancer and most of that goes to HIV. Yeah. Most of that goes to HIV. So can, yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. This is probably the thing that I spend 
have spent more of my career railing against than anything else. You know, we have a sense right now in, it, it's a little bit better in the survey world. The survey world has really changed because, you know, about 10 years ago, there was like one state that added sexual orientation and gender identity data to its biggest health survey. And in the last, you know, a little over 10 years, it's now gone up to 40 states. So we see a huge uptick in these health surveys, but the place where it's still really lagging is in research and in um, electronic health records, because people may not realize the way we get cancer outcome data is with that intake form you fill out the doctor's office. So if that intake form doesn't ask if you're a sexual or gender minority, which is another phrase for LGBTQ person, then we're never going to find out what our cancer rates are, what our cancer incidence is, what our cancer mortality rates are. So I can talk till I'm blue in the face about how we have higher cancer risk, particularly because of smoking disparities and some other risk factors. But then the story stops. And the problem with that story stopping and us not being able to prove the disparity as far as the differences in rates is that we can't write grants. We can't get intervention money off of that. We can't prove that it's something that needs to be fixed when there's missing data. So in this particular space, since so much of cancer information is gathered out of electronic health records, it's really not going to change until we routinely see that those intake forms at doctor's offices saying, are you LGBTQ? And a lot of people might say, well, what does it matter? Well, hopefully now you can see it actually can hugely matter for some populations. For us, until our health disparities are in the light, no one fixes what you can't see and what you don't know is there. So I'm actually about to launch a big data collection letter that 100 organizations have co-signed saying, hey, we understand we're very happy everybody wants to jump on the pride bandwagon in June. But if you really care about our lives, collect our data all year long. And just to be clear, too, there's a real like there's evidence showing that even in something as unnerving as an ER situation, 90 percent of us are willing to disclose. But 80 percent of doctors think you shouldn't ask. So we've just got an education mismatch there. We're like, no, please ask us. Of course, some of us will not disclose, probably because we don't feel safe. But many of us will. Exactly. And I will say that the Cleveland Clinic, I, I will give them that. That has shifted over the last few years, even when I go in for my kids. When I fill out their profiles and stuff online, it does ask. It asks for sexual orientation and gender identity. I love that. And my kids are, are 15 and I have two, a 15 year old and two 10 year olds. And when I go in, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but it does ask. It asks for everybody. So I, I, I do love seeing that. I'm like, all right, this is nice. This is good. Both sexual orientation and gender identity, which I really, really appreciate. Yeah. And I think that's only one of about five cancer centers out of the 150 or so that around the country that I know that, that do collect those data. So you know, room for growth. How about that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At Breast Cancer Action, we do a lot of work around um, like pink ribbon marketing and, and things of that sort and, and challenging kind of the mainstream and, you know, believe that the pink ribbon marketing that we see in October, which is notoriously known as Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Pinktober. Yes. And there's an influx of pink ribbons and, <sighs> you know, like fluffy. Th- I hear you say, <laughs> I hear you saying, uh, so <sighs> can you talk about how that, you know, that kind of culture misrepresents a lot of people and excludes um, people with you know, really diverse lived experiences. And Loria, I'm guessing from your huffing and puffing, you have had some experience with this. <laughs> well, I, I, the Pinktober thing is, is it is frustrating. It, it's almost like it's, it's what we're talking about, about Pride Month. I mean, 
it's all great that people want to, you know, recognize and, you know, show that they're accepting and stuff. But for so many, so many organizations, it's a marketing tool. And that's kind of, that. that's what happens with October. I mean, it, it became, it's such a marketing thing. It's like, hey, if you buy this, we'll put so much into this breast cancer research, or, but we don't really know how much. And is it really happening? And it was just a way to get people to buy products because they had pink ribbons on them. It's just like now, it's like, we'll we'll buy stuff because it's got a rainbow flag on it. You know, that's all nice and everything, but are you really actually doing anything? Are you doing anything to really help the people that need the help? You know, what are we actively doing to, you know, give money to stage four breast cancer, for example, because that's the only kind that kills people. Okay. So, you know, things like that. And how are we addressing income disparities and, and access to quality care for people that have been diagnosed? I mean, those are the things that concern me. It's like, well, it's all good. We can wave our pink, our little pink ribbons. But the reality is pink ribbons don't solve anything, you know, and that's where I get frustrated because until the pink ribbons indicate, hey, everyone has full access to quality care, there's no discrimination and disparities between that. that that's what I want to see. Then, then the pink ribbon, I'll wave it. Flag, I'll, I will wave that like I'll wave my rainbow flag <laughs> authentically and beautifully. But right now, the pink ribbon just irritates me because for so many people, it's just, hey, look. Yeah, I bought this. I bought this thing, you know, this yogurt. I bought this big bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, which is going to give me, <laughs> it's not going to help breast cancer. I can tell you that it might get you a little closer to getting it. But yeah. <laughs> well, but what it does do, what we do know pink ribbons do do is they create a real gender conformity expectation and layer it on top of that. You've yes. got these bright pink mama vans. And when you're talking about, yes. again, you know, people of all gender identities, are at risk for breast cancer. That's right. And you know, what is it when a trans guy is like, oh, you can go get a, you need a mammography. Now please go to this bright pink van or go to the women's health center of this clinic. Like, you know, another one of my friends is trans guy and had to go for a mammography here again in a very welcoming area. And the, it was kind of funny because the clinic of the, that did all the diagnostic screenings has a big, you know, mammography thing, but it's in the women's health area. Sure. And so they decided to put him in a completely different section of the whole place. And it was funny because he talked about how then he was left there. They kind of, the provider couldn't find him because they didn't understand what was going on. What happened to the patient oh for like, you know, 20 minutes, he's just being like, is anybody coming kind of thing. So, you know, even then when you try and kind of go back and, and fix it, it still doesn't feel welcoming. So those pink ribbons definitely don't feel welcoming for some of us and they don't actually fix anything. Right. That's it. Pink is not a cure. And the other part is that, you know, there's all these campaigns, save the tatas and save second base. And like, again, you're sexualizing a potentially fatal disease. Yeah. You know, I have friends that have died from this disease you know, in, in their 40s, you know, the people that I went through chemotherapy with, you know, and so I'm, when I hear that, it's very offensive. And, you know, I can only imagine, you know, what it would feel like as, you know, someone in the trans community. I'm like, it's, it's just so, I don't know, I find it degrading, I find it demoralizing, I find it insulting, but people think they're doing good. And that's the part that's hard. And I can I say, Again, I, I present male very easily as a trans guy in, in my particular. And I remember I was at a big office supply store and they're like, you want to donate to the Save the Tata campaign? And I'm like, no, because I want to do something actually more effective in this area. Yeah. And they're like, what? You don't care about the Tatas? And I'm like, do not try and shame me, woman. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's like, right. back off. Let's you know, be more effective. This is not the way we're going to solve any of these issues. 
I just wanted to say thank you so much, Scout and Lori, for joining us on the show to help illuminate some of the realities um, that are going on. How can we stay in touch with the National LGBT Cancer Network? I know you all have um, are pushing the the launch of the responses for um, the out survey. Yeah. Well, you can definitely follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our homepage. If you go to cancer-network.org, you'll be able to sign up for our listserv, too. I think we actually have some pretty interesting newsletters. We've got a lot going on. Sometimes we're not even as good talking about it as we are doing it, but we've got a lot going down. So, yeah, connect, plug in. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. And and thank you so much, Lori, for sharing your story and the realness of it, which I think is, you know, kind of gets overlooked when we're talking about breast cancer um, in the more mainstream way that it's generally talked about. So thank you both for joining. Again, um, a shameless plug, Breast Cancer Action. We're just launching our Instagram page. So if you would like to follow us, go ahead. And I'm really excited to tune in next week to um, the launch of the, the survey responses from the out survey. And thank you again so much. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org because together we can do something besides worry.